Let's pray, friends. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for the reading of your word. And now, as we hear the preaching of it, we pray for your help. We pray for your spirit to come in power and to illuminate your word that our hearts might be able to receive it well, that, they, that we might be able to respond appropriately with the right attitude, an attitude of obedience and faith to your truth. Oh, shape us, O oh Lord, in this moment. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as November 3rd approaches, all of us are being inundated with news about the election. The headlines are coming to us nonstop. It's all about what this or that candidate did or said, about who won this or that debate, about what's at stake if this or that party wins. And I know some of you are just exhausted by all of this. And, and the last thing you want to hear is more election talk. But others of you might be wanting more, especially wanting to hear what the church has to say about it. And that's why some churches uh, are doing a sermon series specifically during this time of year focused on the election. Well, as you can see, we're not doing that here at our church. We are just going to stay in our Micah series. It's not because we're necessarily against doing a topical series or topical sermon on the election. We don't think it's, it's wrong to do. We just don't think it's necessary either because the word of God itself is already extremely relevant and has something to say to all the various contemporary issues we're facing. There, there really is no need to pause in our practice of walking through the scriptures, listening to the inspired word as God has arranged it into books. And so it's our conviction that when we preach through books of the Bible, there is a divine wisdom guiding us and giving us a timely word each week. And friends, I think you're going to see this point proven true in this morning's text. It includes the most well-known passage in the book of Micah. It's all about the origins of Israel's Messiah, the promised ruler who will secure the throne of David and rule in righteousness now and forevermore. And of course, those of us who are familiar with the Christmas story know how all of this is fulfilled in Jesus through his birth in the little town of Bethlehem. That's the Christmas story. But you know, before the Christmas story, before the story of the Messiah's coming, there was the story of Israel's waiting waiting for this king to come. The story of Israel's waiting is really the story of how all things fall apart when a rightful ruler is not on the throne. You see, up to Micah's day, the people of God were suffering under a, a string of bad kings, which fueled everyone's longing for the return of a good king who's going to restore glory to the kingdom and make everything right. Now, if that sounds oddly familiar... Well, that's because that's basically the plot line of all the greatest stories. In Robin Hood, you have the good King Richard far away in a distant land fighting the Crusades. And back home, his treacherous brother John has crowned himself king. He is a terror on the throne and the people are longing for the return of their rightful ruler. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the people long for the return of Isildur's heir. 
with the shadow of Mordor stretching across Middle Earth. Everyone is waiting for the rightful ruler of Gondor to reclaim his throne and, and to push back and to resist the growing evil. Or if you think about C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, Every time there was no son of Adam or daughter of Eve on the throne, Narnia would fall into ruin. Truffle Hunter the Badger, he reminds the reader, quote, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. And so they wait. They wait for the return of the king. Now, where do you think all of these beloved stories got their inspiration? Friends, there's a good reason why these storylines resonate with us. They speak really to a common truth about the human condition that we all have within us a deep need for a good king to reign over us. If you think about the book of Judges in the Old Testament, that will offer a perfect illustration of what happens when that deep need is not met, when there is no king over us. The book of Judges is a very dark book. It's filled with war and violence and horrendous atrocities. And the last verse in the book actually summarizes everything well for us. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I know that might sound like good advice to the ears of this world. But in scripture, doing what is right in your own eyes is a recipe for disaster. It's going to bring ruin to you and to the world around you. What we need instead is to have a good king to reign over us. Now, in Micah's day, there was a king on the throne. He was even a descendant of David. But these kings all failed in some way. Apparently, just having a king doesn't solve the problem. What we need is a rightful king to reign over us. And friends, I think this is the same predicament that we find ourselves in today. We live in a society that's all about doing whatever is right in our own eyes. We, we have just bought into this idea that we are self-autonomous creatures that have the freedom to define truth and reality for ourselves. We are living as if we are our own kings and queens ruling over the kingdom of me. But where has that gotten us? It looks to me like our society is unraveling in the chaos. There's so much division, so much polarization. There's so much distrust and suspicion of our leaders. So many people are hoping that this upcoming election is going to bring us the right president or the, the right legislators, and they're going to appoint the right judges, and then they're going to all make everything right. But our text reminds us that what we really need is the rightful ruler that God himself will supply. We're going to see in our text three things that God is going to do to meet this deep need within us, this deep need for a good king to reign over us. First, we're going to see God painfully purge away all competitors to his rightful ruler. Second, he will surprisingly raise up an ancient ruler to pastor his people. And third, his ruler will send out a faithful remnant among the nations. So our passage, if you're looking at it with me, is comprised of three oracles. Verses 2 to 6 is one, 
and then you have verses seven to nine, and lastly, you have verses 10 to 15. Now, I'm actually gonna start with this third oracle because I think by doing so, it's gonna help us to better understand what's gonna happen when a people lack a rightful ruler. Essentially, what people do is that we, we turn to other sources, looking for the kind of security and guidance and blessing that a good king would normally provide. This is what we see Micah focusing on in this third oracle. What we're going to see in our first point is how God responds by painfully purging away all competitors to his rightful ruler. So look with me at verse 10. Now, as we've already noted in previous sermons, Micah was delivering these particular oracles during the reign of King Hezekiah. So that means during this time, the Assyrian army was looming large. They, they had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and now the southern kingdom of Judah was their target. And they had largely destroyed most of the land, and the sole holdout was the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, starting in verse 10... The Lord has a warning for his people. He says he's going to cut off access to the various sources that they have been turning to, these various competitors to his rightful ruler. These sources were stealing the trust that his good king deserves, and God won't abide that. And so notice how four times over the Lord says, I will cut off. Whatever it is you're relying on, I will cut off. In other words, when I cut it off, it's going to hurt. It's going to be a painful process, a painful purging. So listen, first, in verses 10 to 11, the Lord will painfully purge us of dependence on worldly might. And in that day, verse 10, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. So these verses are addressing our human tendency where we don't have that rightful ruler over us, our tendency to trust in earthly powers for our sense of security. In this case, we're talking about turning to military might. So horses and chariots were offensive weapons of war used by ancient civilizations. Fortified cities, strongholds, well, those were the defensive structures that people would look to for refuge. And so if they were scared, if they were feeling threatened, they would hide themselves in these earthly structures, and then they would trust in their military to rescue them from their enemies. Now, friends, I think it would be reading too much into this text to suggest that God was opposed to fortifying cities or to having a standing military or to spending money on a nation's defense budget. I think you can make a legitimate biblical case for having a strong military and also for having an effective law enforcement. Romans 13, for example, teaches us that God gives the sword to governing authorities to carry out his wrath on wrongdoers. So verse 10 is not condemning us for having a strong military or having a large defense budget, but it is condemning us for putting our trust in these things. Listen to Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what we're talking about here. Putting our trust ultimately in the Lord and not in our earthly might. 
Secondly, in verse 12, the Lord will painfully purge us of a dependence on magic. So purging us from a dependence on the military and now on magic. Listen to verse 12. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. Now, I realize that few of us would even remotely consider ourselves as being dependent on magic. It's like not even something that crossed our minds. You have no interest in the occult or in astrology or consulting fortune tellers. And so this seems like a pretty irrelevant point. But remember that in those days, magic didn't look like a man pulling a rabbit out of a hat or a lady staring into a crystal ball. Sometimes, of course, ancient magic did involve a potion or an amulet, but, you know, it mainly had to do with invoking incantations, special words that you would say aimed at manipulating spiritual forces around you to give you guidance or, or to give you some kind of blessing or curse. Now, I know all that sounds primitive, but honestly, don't we kind of do something similar ourselves? Don't we essentially practice a form of magic? It's where we treat something like prayer, and we treat it like as if it were some kind of magical incantation, where we think that we have to just say the right formula, and you have to end it with, in Jesus' name, or it's not going to come true. Or it's where we think, by doing regular devotions or some other religious rite, that's going to somehow make God bless us more or that's going to give us some kind of divine answer whenever we're faced with a perplexing decision before us. So, yes, I, 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 I know we don't speak of us dabbling with magic, but maybe it's not that far-fetched to describe us as a people dependent on magic. If we're honest, sometimes our dealings with God can't compare with a personal relationship between friends. Instead, it seems more like the dealings of a sorcerer or a fortune teller trying to conjure up divine wisdom or conjure up divine power in order to get more direction or more blessing in our lives. Friends, if that accurately describes your dealings with God, then perhaps you need to be purged of this mindset or else you'll never come to know God's rightful ruler as a personal sovereign and friend in your life. So third, in verses 13 to 14, the Lord will painfully purge us of a dependence on idols. So he'll purge us from a dependence on military, on might, on magic, and now on idols. So listen to verse 13. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down to no, no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Now, again, I think many people today would balk at the charge of idolatry. Uh, they don't really have statues or shrines back home. And, you know, they, they don't see themselves as bowing down to any kind of carved images made with our own hands. And so they don't think that they rely on idols. But we have to remember that idolatry is really a matter of the heart. And so anything can become an idol if your heart begins to treat it that way. Any person, any possession, any pursuit in life, no matter how noble it is in and of itself, can be treated as an idol in your heart. 
That's when you assign to it ultimate significance. It's, it's where your sense of joy and, and purpose and identity is wrapped up in that person or possession or pursuit. You know, I, I can speak from personal experience that I needed God to conduct deep purging in my life halfway through my college years. Because it was only then, only then did I recognize my rightful ruler. You see, up to that point in my life, I, I knew who Jesus was. He was my ticket into heaven. He was the one that I was going to turn to when I die and God were to ask me, why should I let you into my heaven? I was going to say, Jesus, he was my answer to get in. But besides that, I didn't really need him, especially I didn't need him to be a ruler over my life because I was functioning as my own ruler. I was doing whatever was right in my own eyes. But God, in his grace, began cutting things off. He began painfully purging me of my idols. He, he mainly did it by allowing me to experience deep disappointment in the very sources where I had sought for security or guidance or blessing. God exposed the futility of these idols, dethroning them from my heart and freeing me from their rule. And that left me restless and that left me ready to receive Jesus not just as my ticket to heaven, but as my rightful ruler right now on this earth. And so, friends, I think what we see in Micah's day is God being gracious to purge his people as a means to prepare his people to receive his Messiah. And I hope that you see that he is doing the same thing in our day. Maybe some of you have recently experienced loss or disappointment. You've had that sense of having precious things in your life being cut off, being purged away, and I know it hurts. I know it's painful. But could it be that God is purging you of these false sources of security and guidance and blessing? Could it be that he is preparing the way for your heart to receive his rightful ruler, a true and better ruler than you can ever be for, your, for yourself? Perhaps that's what God is doing with your pain. Well, friends, that brings us to now ask about the identity of this rightful ruler. And that brings us back to the beginning of our text in verse 2. We've seen how he painfully purges away all competitors to his rightful ruler. Second here, in verses 2 to 6, we see how God surprisingly raises up an ancient ruler to pastor his people. Speaking now to a hopeless and defeated people, he is promising that this king will come, though he will come from an unexpected origin. So recall with me how back in chapter 1 of Micah, we saw how the Assyrians, fresh off of their defeat of the northern kingdom, began a campaign against Judah. And they were capturing towns. They were capturing fortified cities. Micah mentions all of this in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And all of those cities mentioned uh, in that section are found in a lowland region southwest of Jerusalem. And what's important to note here is that that region included the town of Bethlehem. So what that means is that by chapter 5, the people of Jerusalem 
have pretty much given up on Bethlehem and all of the towns in that region. They were, in their minds, as good as gone. It was a lost cause. But then, suddenly here in chapter 5, verse 2, they hear Micah say, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So suddenly, they hear a glimmer of hope. But this hope is coming from a very surprising place. It's coming from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, Ephrathah is the name of the Judean district where Bethlehem is located. It's like saying Houston, Texas. And it was necessary here to mention the particular district because otherwise Micah's audience could have been confused with another Bethlehem that's located in a northern region in the land of Zebulun. And so it's like, it's like if someone was to tell you today that they're going to go and travel to visit Paris. And you're like, oh, cool. You're going to go to Paris, France? And they're like, uh, no, Paris, Texas. Uh, you know, you know, northeast of Dallas, right close to the Oklahoma border. And you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's an important distinction there. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's very different. Because you were thinking of one, but it's, very, it's, it's, it's actually another, another location. And that is just how obscure Bethlehem was in the days of Micah. It, it was not a prominent city that, that could be easily identified by its name alone. It's not like New York or London or, or Houston, right? Like, I mean, these places, all you got to say is the name of the city, and you know exactly where you're talking about. Uh, Bethlehem, in this case, needed further identification. And really, that's because, as it says in verse 2, Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, what's that referring to? Well, what it's referring to is how, when you go back to Joshua chapter, 20, uh, chapter 15, that is where uh, you're going to see there, uh, a listing out of 46 cities of the tribe of Judah as the land was being settled and they're allocating uh, the, 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 the land to the various tribes and the cities within. Bethlehem doesn't even make that list of all of those cities. That's how small, that's how insignificant it is. Now, of course, its claim to fame is being the hometown of King David. And that connection to David is probably what's in view when it says here in verse 2 that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Uh, it's essentially saying this Messiah is going to come from this ancient line of kings in the lineage of David. Now, I know someone might still argue that, hey, you know, Bethlehem being the hometown of, of David, that's still a pretty big deal. But if you think about it, we usually associate famous people with the town that they got famous in, not so much their hometown or their birthplace. So, for example, when you think of Michael Jordan, you're probably going to associate him with Chicago. It makes sense. That's where he got famous. Now, basketball fans might know that he actually grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's his hometown. And, and the avid fan is going to know that his birthplace was actually in Brooklyn. I think he moved uh, to North Carolina when he was like four or five. And so even a famous person, his birthplace or his hometown can still be rather obscure or just unknown. And I think that would be the case for the little town of Bethlehem. It was obscure. 
it was insignificant in the eyes of many. And yet God chose this insignificant little town to be the birthplace of his Messiah, the rightful ruler of his people. He didn't choose the town based on its prominence or its popularity. He didn't choose based on its strength and might. No, he chose based on its meekness and smallness, which really is so fitting when you learn more about this Messiah. Listen to verses 3 to 5. Therefore he shall give them up until a time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Notice with me in verse 3 how Micah has to clarify that this king won't immediately deliver you from all of these invading nations. Now, those invasions will happen, and the Babylonians will eventually succeed in capturing Jerusalem and exiling all the people. You are going to be captured. You are going to be exiled as a consequence for your sins. That's what the people need to hear. But it's because of this promise in verse 2, this promise of a rightful ruler that Micah can say in verse 3, therefore, you can be sure that God will only give you up into exile for a time period. And then when uh, it will end, when she who is in labor has given birth. So when this rightful ruler is birthed, the exile will end. There will be an expiration date to this exile. So when the Messiah, when he comes, then it says, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That is referring there to all of the tribes of Israel who had already been exiled by the Assyrians. All of the scattered sheep around uh, the region will return to God's sheepfold. Now notice with me the pastoral language that's being applied in verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Now, I know that might sound strange for a king's labor, a king's responsibility to be described as shepherding. Because shepherds are known for their caring demeanor and for their patience with stubborn sheep and for their willingness to put their own lives at risk in order to protect their flock. But the truth is, you're probably not going to find too many kings or rulers or earthly leaders who fit that kind of a description. And notice with me how this rightful ruler is described as standing. He's not lounging around. He's not some kind of pompous king laying about waiting for people to serve him. No, this Messiah is up on his feet and he is up and about shepherding the people, pastoring the flock. Now, when we consider the meekness of the Messiah's birthplace and the nature of his kingship as defined in terms of a pastoral shepherding care, friends, I think we are led to one very clear conclusion. This Messiah, this rightful ruler, will be different from all those who came before him. You see, the kings of Jerusalem, who uh, they were all born in, in fancy palaces, clothed in purple robes, sitting on ornate thrones, and they were all royal failures. But now, God is going to do something different. 
This time born in a lowly cattle shed, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, we now have the rightful ruler, the right king, the king we all know we need to be reigning over us. One who came to serve and not to be served. One who came to give his life as a ransom for many. All in order that he might be our peace. Do you see that in verse 5? Look there. And he shall be their peace. Now that's talking about peace on earth. The Messiah will one day bring earthly peace, bringing an end to all wars, all conflict, all violence and bloodshed. We already saw back in chapter 4, verse 3, that soldiers will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be an end to all conflict. And that, my friends, will be a glorious day. But of course, there's a more glorious peace to be had a more fundamental peace that first needs to happen before we can expect peace on earth. And that's having peace with God. You see, as sinners, our greatest need is to have the righteous wrath of God removed against us. Hostility between God and man must be reconciled. When the rightful ruler laid down his own rights and gave his life as a ransom for many, All who trust in him, we are told, will be saved. We will be at peace with God. And so, friends, if you don't know if you have peace with God, don't go another day without knowing. Don't go another day without experiencing this peace for yourself, having his peace and his favor and his loving kindness over you. You see, unlike earthly authorities, with this king... You don't have to earn these things. You don't have to prove yourself worthy. You have to simply receive these things by faith. That's the good news of the gospel. Compared to the kings and queens of history, compared to dictators and tyrants, compared even to elected leaders of democratic societies, compared to them all, friends, this Messiah, he stands in a category of his own in how he embodies meekness and humility, selflessness and sacrifice, he can actually bring peace and he can bring a disparate, divided people into one body, unified by his spirit of peace. That's what this ruler can do. And this unified people, this this unified body, is what Micah now describes for us as the remnant the remnant of God. We looked at this idea of a remnant last week, and there we saw how the promise of God is to preserve for himself a faithful remnant of Israel and how that promise is ultimately fulfilled in the church. So when we read these prophecies right here about a remnant, they're not just referring to people of Jewish descent. These prophecies regarding a remnant are relevant to all of us who are in Christ Jesus, who make up the church. So let's see what God promises to do with this faithful remnant. Look with me now in verses 7 to 9. Here uh, in this oracle we see, and this is our third point, we see how God's ruler sends out a faithful remnant among the nations. So there is a a global missional focus here. Look at verse 7. 
Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Now, notice there are two images being used here. One is of the people of God, his remnant, refreshing the nations, the unbelieving peoples of the world, just like how a morning dew or a spring shower would refresh a very dry and parched land. But then there is a second image of the people of God being like a young lion ravaging a flock of sheep, tearing it to pieces which in context would suggest that the same remnant will in one sense bring refreshment, but will in another sense bring ruin. Now, I think with this second image, uh, this image of a ravaging lion among the nations, I think what it ultimately is referring to is the biblical teaching that we find in places like Revelation chapter 19 that describes what's gonna take place at the final end of history when the church of God will accompany the returning Messiah, our rightful ruler, as he leads the charge to bring God's judgment and God's wrath upon the unbelieving opposition among the nations. So if you want to learn more about that, read Revelation 19. I think that's what it's kind of referring to ultimately. And I know that's a frightful image for the nations, that is, for, for the unbelieving peoples of the world, but that's why we need to focus our attention right now before that final end comes on this first image, on being a source of refreshment to the nations, on, on showering God's blessing on the peoples of the earth. As he blesses us, the church, with peace and favor and loving kindness, all found within the message of the gospel, we as the remnant, are now sent out to be among the nations, to share those very blessings. As we are blessed by the gospel, we now bless others with the gospel. And of course, this idea of, of being blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations, that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. And if you think about it, it's quite interesting. When Abraham's son, Isaac, blessed Jacob, in Genesis 27, he associated his blessing of Jacob with this same imagery, with dew from heaven. So he tells Jacob that you are going to be a blessing to whoever blesses you. But we saw how in last week's passage in Micah chapter 4, we saw how Jacob, before he could be a blessing to others, he first had to be broken of his pride. He had to be broken over his sin. He had to be crippled before he could be a blessing. The only way he was going to become the dew of heaven was for him to first get a limp and to be broken, and then he could be used. And while church, in the same way, we must be a broken and crippled remnant before we can be a refreshing dew that blesses the nations. So keep that in mind 
Keep in mind how we need to be crippled and broken of our pride, of, of, of our sin. Keep all of that in mind as November rolls around, as the election approaches. In the coming weeks, I think we're going to see a clearer contrast between earthly rulers and the rightful ruler. Earthly rulers are primarily defined by might and power, while the rightful ruler is primarily defined by meekness and peace. And if we are to be his faithful remnant, we cannot mix up those things. We won't be a refreshment to the nations. We will actually lose our Christian witness if we conform to the patterns of this world and we begin to value might and power over meekness and peace. So friends, we must be critical in our thinking and we must be careful with our souls as you engage the political process. Be in it, but not of it. Be a good citizen of this kingdom, but don't forget that your real home is a kingdom still to come. And remember that your true king is not on the ballot because he's not up for election. His rule and reign goes on forever. Keep these things in mind in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder out of the book of Micah, something written so long ago, how it has such relevance to us today, how it speaks to our situation and how it reminds us that we have a true king, a rightful ruler in Christ Jesus. May he be our confidence. May he be our security. May he be our guidance and our blessing in the days to come. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.